Psalm 109. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening, I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. In several of the psalms known as imprecatory psalms, psalms where it seems that the psalmist is calling down curses, they seem to move from humble devotion to these fiery imprecations which causes difficulties for Christians, believing that all Scripture is inspired and profitable 
but equally that as Christians, we are to bless those who curse us. The combination of devotion, meekness, and trust with the fiery imprecations at the heart of this psalm make it a tough challenge to come to terms with as Christians. When we read what the great Baptist preacher in the mid-19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, had to say in his commentary about this psalm, you may understand what I mean by asking that you bear with me as we endeavor to work our way through it. Here's what Spurgeon said in his commentary. Thousands of God's people are perplexed with this psalm, and we fear we have contributed very little towards their enlightenment, and perhaps the notes we have gathered from others since they display a variety of views may only increase the difficulty. I searched the web, all the places that you usually go to find somebody who had preached in Psalm 109, just to sense how they handled it. The only place I could find one was on the archive web of the Tron, where Jim Phillip preached in this many years ago. So we come to this psalm. It's part of God's Word, and we want to hear and know what God might be saying to us through this psalm and principles that we can uh, use in other tough passages of God's Word. So let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you as we come before you tonight. We don't come to open up some book of fables or some stories that are uncertain, but we come to open up your word. And so we are conscious that we want to learn from your word. We want to be helped by your word. And we therefore are also conscious that we need the help of the Holy Spirit as we read your word, as we meditate on it, as we speak of it, but we also need the help of your Spirit to enable us to respond rightly. Help us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. I always think that however tempting it is to evade the difficult parts of Scripture, it is really not a bad thing to be closed into dealing with them in the course of a series, but it's always a very good thing if it happens to fall to someone else's responsibility to deal with them. The real difficulty with this psalm is its imprecatory nature. That is calling down curses upon people. So I think it might be helpful for us to try and at least in some degree, grasp a little of the nettle of handling this kind of a psalm and this part of Scripture. It is the last and the most terrible of this kind of psalm associated with David. And those who desire to show 
in their opinion, just how unchristian parts of the Old Testament are, use such passages as we find in this psalm that was read to us, and particularly the central part, verses 6 through to 19, as evidence of how unchristian parts of the Bible are. They have described them as a song of hate. Such expressions as we find in them do seem to go against Jesus' words, what Jesus taught, as we read them in places like Matthew chapter 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Several of the Psalms are identified as imprecatory Psalms. And of course, as such, raise the question, are they in conflict with Christian ethics? Just listen again to some of the words that were read to us from this Psalm. Verse 6, may his days be few, may another take his office, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins uh, they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. How do these sit alongside the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke's gospel? Love your enemy. Do good to those who despitefully use you. What should the Christian's approach be to such words? Some might say shocking words, as we have read in this psalm and in the light of the words of the Lord Jesus. Love your enemy. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Now, if you read the various commentaries, you will discover that scholars have tried to evade the difficulty by suggesting verses 6 through to 19 should be in inverted commas and viewed as a quotation of what David's enemies were saying against him. And so beginning verse 6 with the words, they say, and then using these central verses as what people have said against David and not his enemies' targets that David has of these words. However, this doesn't resolve the difficulty as David in verse 20 associated himself with this psalm. What do we read in verse 20? May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against me. So David identifies himself with these words. So that doesn't answer the question. And of course, there are other Psalms where David expresses similar words. And they cannot sit in these parentheses. Derek Kidner's commentary, and in his introduction where he deals specifically with the difficulties in understanding the imprecatory Psalms, is especially helpful and seems to be broadly recognized by evangelicals. 
And if you'll bear with me whilst I read a quotation from this commentary, and can I suggest that if you're really serious about studying such and grappling with such challenging areas of God's Word, perhaps you could do no better than to get hold of that commentary of Kidner's. He comments there, the gospel, to be sure, radically redirects our concern. But it does so partly by introducing the new situation created by the cross, and partly by clarifying what was barely visible at an earlier stage, that is, the life to come. To get fully in tune with the psalmist on this issue, we should have to suppress our consciousness of having a gospel to impart, which affects our attitude to fellow sinners. What Kidner is saying here, to get fully attuned with what has been in this psalm, we would need to go pre the cross, pre your understanding of Calvary, and begin to look at these words from that point of view. and our assurance of final righting of wrongs, which affects our attitude to present anomalies. You know what it is when there are things that you know are just not right, but you're conscious that ultimately it will be made right. That helps you to handle that. Kidner is saying, in other words, we view life through the filter of the cross. And so we come to this psalm and we come to scriptures like this and we view them through the filter of the cross. And he goes on to say, without these certainties, only a cynic could feel no impatience to see justice triumph and evil men broken without the knowledge of the cross. And he goes on to refer to those who were penning the words, these imprecatory psalms. These authors were no cynics. It would be better, in fact, says Kidner, to speak of these attuning our ears to the gospel than of our adjusting to their situation For we cannot truly hear its words, that is the gospel, until we have felt the force of their questions. We have felt something of the force of the judgments of God. In other words, until we have felt something of the seriousness of the judgment of God upon unrepentant people. And perhaps that's why we struggle so much with such words that maybe we have lost the sense of the awfulness of the judgment of God upon unrepentant people. Now, this is a concept and concern also clearly taught in the New Testament. If you take, for example, the parable of the Lord Jesus about the persistent widow and the unjust judge who relented at the widow's persistence, Jesus said, and will not God 
vindicate his elect, give justice to his elect. He will vindicate them speedily. He will give justice to them speedily. And so this psalm is pleading for justice to be done. And here Jesus is saying, will not God vindicate his elect? The words of the psalmist are asking for more than that his name, that is, David's name, be cleared. He is concerned that justice be done, that there be retribution, that wrongs will be righted. These central verses, where the difficulty lies, must not be regarded as a personal wish of the psalmist in cold-blooded revenge, but of a prophetic denunciation of such people as are described in this psalm and in these verses. And indeed, if we look at verse 8, it's a verse that is also picked up by Peter in Acts chapter 1, 16, 20, when he speaks about Judas. Verse 8 reads, May his days be few, may another take his office. If we look at Acts 1 and read verse 16 through 20, we'll see a reference there to Judas and these words referring to Judas himself in relation to him. And of course, there are similar expressions in other parts of the Old Testament and specifically in the prophets. For example, Jeremiah 18.21, which contains words very similar to those in verses 9 and 10 of this psalm, where the psalmist says, May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit it. If you look across at some time at your leisure at Jeremiah 18.21, you will find those words that are mirrored there. I think we need to look at these words as an expression of a passion for justice, like the words of Jeremiah, like the words of Job, voicing the cry, their cry against innocent blood, that justice might be done. Now we need to note the Old Testament and the New Testament do not speak with different voices on the matter of public, in, uh, matter of the public administration of justice. The New Testament endorses the teaching of the Old Testament. There is plenty of evidence that David's passion for justice was genuine. And he was not a man with a vindictive spirit. You remember how Saul hounded him. You remember Saul's attitude to David. And then if you recall the situations in two situations where David, in a sense, had Saul in a trap. Saul was in a situation where David could quite easily, quite easily have got his own back on Saul. But if you read those passages again in 1 Samuel 24, 26 at your leisure, you will discover that David did not take his opportunity of revenge. Rather, he said, he dare not touch the Lord's anointed. 
Was David being specially Christian in his approach there and very un-Christian in his approach now? I think not. Psalm 62, verse 12, David says to God, For you will render to a man according to his work. This surely has echoes of Paul's words in Romans 2, 5, where Paul speaks of the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. This was reference to the final judgment. God's Old Testament people with a less clear understanding of what the next life would hold were looking for some kind of justice in this life. But Paul reminds us here, the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That day hadn't come. And of course, as we learn of the atrocities that happen daily throughout the world, everything within us cries out for justice to be done. Don't you find that in your heart as you look at what happens in the world around us? Again, if I might quote from Spurgeon, he says, We wish well for all mankind. And for that very reason, we sometimes blaze with indignation against the inhuman wretches by whom every law which protects our fellow creatures is trampled down. Of course, our response to injustice must ever be tempered by our understanding that however often the perpetrators of the most hideous atrocities seem to go free, there is a final day of justice and judgment. When the judgment will be perfect as well as being just. And in the light of this, we must not take, we do not take such matters into our own hands. The Christian's understanding of some of the terrible atrocities and their reaction to them is tempered with an understanding that there is a final day of judgment when the judge of all the earth will do right. Justice will be fully realized. Let's just take a moment to look at some verses in Romans 12. Verse 14, 17, 19. And uh, these truths are underlined for us here. Verse 14 of Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So there is the exhortation to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. But give, though, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then at verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. Our response to the evil atrocities we see in the world around us 
must ever go through the filter of the cross with a clear understanding that absolute justice will be done on that final day. And whoever hideous the crime may be, the repentant sinner will find mercy and forgiveness at the cross. But ultimately, God will be the judge. Peter Maiden, in his book, Discipleship Matters, relates a very human story of this when he writes about Willie, Pete Williams from Georgia, who served for more than two decades in prison. He was convicted in 1985 of truly horrific crimes he had never committed and was sentenced for 45 years imprisonment. He always claimed his innocence, and the Innocent Project took up the case. After an investigation, they took the case back to court, and in 2007, Williams was found not guilty. After singing a few lines of Amazing Grace, 44-year-old Williams walked out of prison a free man. And as Peter Maiden says in his book, went home to eat steak with his family. A few days later, he appeared at a news conference and claimed he wasn't angry about spending half his life behind bars. Instead, demonstrated forgiveness and mercy. The comment, anyone can screw up. We are all human. Williams attributed his remarkable ability to forgive to his conversion to Christ in prison. That's been my rock, he said. That's been my rock. You see, ultimately, Williams knew that however much he had been set up, And whoever had perpetrated such a judgment on him, it wasn't his business to bring them to justice, though it would be a good thing if they did, someone did. Ultimately, God would bring that matter to justice. He was bringing that situation through the filter of the cross and the grace of God that had reached his life. Again, we deal with the happenings in life through the filter of the cross. We do well to remember that there are two appearings of Jesus. One to atone for the sins of his people. The other for their final salvation and judgment. And on that day, all wrongs will be put right. All injustices will be righted. This salvation will involve the eradication of all evil and the punishment of all the enemies of God. At Jesus' first appearing, God sent him not to judge the world, but to save the world. When Jesus returns in glory, it will be in flaming fire 
inflicting vengeance, as we read in 2 Thessalonians, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If you want to read that fuller as a reference to Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10, and we'll read something of the sharpness of that judgment and the seriousness of it that the Apostle Paul reminds us will happen on that day when Jesus returns. In the book of Revelation, John encourages the persecuted church with a vision of the last judgment. We first view the martyrs crying out for vengeance and then see them finally rejoicing in the overthrow of all political and religious forces of wickedness that have been arrayed against God and his people. Might I interject here, perhaps we might pray for the suffering church throughout the world that God will enable them to find something of the encouragement of these truths in their hearts. Whatever else this psalm may teach us, it does not endorse taking personal revenge, but rather speaks of the seriousness of rejecting Christ and the awfulness of God's final judgment, and that ultimately the judge of all the earth will do right. We can safely leave the ultimate outcome of all that seems to be unjust in God's hands. And it looks like this is actually where the psalmist ends in this imprecatory section. If we read verse 20, 21, May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against me, but you, O God, my Lord, Deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Ultimately, these terrible judgment would be meted out, not by David, but by the Lord. Mind he probably had his idea, did he had, as to what he thought God should do. But we must keep in mind that the psalmist was not speaking out of a heart of vengeance. We need to underscore that. There was a prophetic note in what David was uttering, a note that was in keeping with the other prophets as we read through the Scriptures. Perhaps there's a word for you and me, and perhaps for some of us in particular, I don't know, of a situation that we think we know how wrong should be righted. And that way, let our accusers see that I was right all along. How we need to learn again and again that we simply must trust God to work out His purposes for the offender and for the offended. Because ultimately it is God who is offended by man's wickedness and sin. And I don't know about you, but I've discovered from personal experience, 
God always makes a better job of any vindication that I need than I can myself. It's always a wise thing to leave it in the hands of an all-wise God. But just let us briefly pick up some of the phrases that characterize the psalmist and undergirded him amidst his greatest distresses, phrases that indicate his confidence in God, who is the person of his praise and to whom he calls out for help. Verse 1 through 5, a cry comes from the psalmist's heart. Be not silent, O God, of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they cause me, and in turn for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. These verses, though they take up almost, although taken up almost entirely with David's complaint about an assault on his integrity, begins with a heart cry to God. Be not silent. One of the toughest places to be as a Christian is when all seems to be going against me. And it seems that God is silent. It seems that God is not actually bothered or interested in what's going on in my little world. And when David says, be not silent, he is simply saying, God, speak to me. Say something to me in this. Speak to me. Some of us could be there tonight. Some of us may be there tomorrow. But some of us, all of us, along our pilgrim journey will find ourselves in situations where we feel crushed. And we need God to speak to us. The accusers had been spreading false reports about David. And his love had been rewarded by more accusations. Is it any wonder he cried out, be not silent? A cry that God somehow will step into the situation. Lord, all they seem to be able to do is make false allegations. But he says, but I prayer. Lord, my confidence is in you. Please don't be silent. And while David's enemies engaged in their slander and malicious attacks, he is busy with prayer. That's a wise place to go when false accusations come, when misunderstandings come. 
Oh, there may be times we need to talk through things to resolve things, but there are just times when the wisest place to go is to the place of prayer and to bring it to God. Have you ever been there when it seems the love you've been trying to show has been thrown back in your face? When you've been doing something with the very best of motives, and these have been questioned and totally misunderstood? Where do we turn? Do we allow bitterness, resentment to build up? And you know how that builds? This gets one or two little blocks, and that person that you're bitter against or resented against, they just have to say the least little thing that you had never have batted an eyelid before, but you've got a reservoir of bitterness and resentment, and just the least little thing, there it is again, and it goes on and on and on. Or do we ask God what he has to say in this and indeed what he is saying? What is he teaching me? We can either allow such experiences to make us, to quote a phrase, bitter or better. They are more likely to make me better if I give myself to prayer and trust God with the outworking than if I try to vindicate myself. Verse 21, 29, we discover that there is a servant who is crushed. It would appear that David is shattered in every sense, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Verse 22, we read, For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accuser. When they see me, they wag their heads. This is a crushed servant, but one who has a heart that is jealous for God's honor. Verse 21, he says, But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. David is a crushed servant, but a crushed servant who was jealous for the honor of God. He is concerned that God be honored with the outcome. And you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter too much about the honor of my name. In fact, it doesn't matter at all. But it matters a great deal about the honor of the name of God. That's what matters. He was conscious of God's covenant love. The enemies may curse, but God will bless his servant. 
We are reminded in verses 28, 29 of this. Reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, plenty can be against us. Indeed, plenty may be against us. But what Paul is saying here, if God is for us, it matters little who is against us. If God is on our side, if God is with me, that's not a kind of a bravado kind of thing. That's not a kind of a Um, It doesn't matter if I make all kinds of enemies as long as God's for me. That's not what we are saying. If we are seeking to be godly and live godly lives and be faithful in seeking His honor, and we are misunderstood and misrepresented, and it seems that all is against me. Well, if God is for us, then it is not really terribly important who is against us. And as we come towards a conclusion, there is the psalm, there is the voice of praise, the vow of praise, verses 30, 31. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul. The psalmist begins with a difficult situation, but ends with confident praise. The psalmist is gathered with worshiping people of Israel. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. He is gathered with the people of God, and he is giving praise. One of the great benefits, amidst many others, of gathering with fellow believers is our mutual encouragement of each other. As we share fellowship, as we sit under God's Word, as we sing the great hymns of praise, be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. We can sing that to each other. We can encourage each other. The beginning of the psalm as accuser, we read, is standing at his right hand in verse 6. But note, who is at his right hand now? No longer his accuser, but his defender. God, he says, is at my right hand. Why will he praise the Lord? He is at his right hand and his defender, not his accuser. And on the day of judgment, he will have one to stand there and deliver him from his accusers. And let's encourage ourselves by understanding that so will every true believer in the Lord Jesus on that great day. John reminds us in his epistle that we have an advocate, one who pleads our cause. 
Jesus Christ the righteous. Remember, too, that promise in John 16 where the Lord Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the counselor, the one alongside will not be with you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit comes to aid God's people. The Son stands by the accused. Not merely as we journey through this life, and he does, the Holy Spirit is alongside to strengthen us, to sustain us. God stands by our side. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. But on that great day, not merely as we go through the twists and turns of this life, but on that day when we stand before the judge, he stands there with the imprints of Calvary. And says, the price is paid. He is my advocate. He stands before the Father's throne. And our attitude to the authority of Scripture has an important bearing on how we approach the words of this psalm. Peter clearly saw them as not merely the expression of a vindictive man, but prophetic words. We've made reference to Judas. But there is also references, whilst it may not necessarily be a messianic psalm, there are references that are messianic. If you read verse 25, where it speaks about them wagging their heads. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus was on the cross? And they cried to him, he saved others, he cannot save himself, wagging their heads. We need to understand such scriptures as these and other difficult passages in the prophets and other parts of the Old Testament in particular in the light of the law and in the sense of judgment and justice having to be accomplished in this life. But we must deal with such through the filter of the cross ever keeping in mind how seriously God looks on the injustices of this life. But God says, vengeance is mine. If you look at verses 27, 31, the expectation is that both friend and foe will be aware when God comes to David's help in his personal life. Did David have in mind something parallel to this happening publicly in the nation? And do we not also need to be praying that in our own nation and in the nations of the world, we may know something of God's intervention in some of the horrific things that are happening but that God's people might ever be enabled to 
allow all of the injustices that they see happening and that may happen to them through the filter of Calvary, remembering the two appearings of Jesus. One for the cross. Two for our final salvation and final judgment when all that is wrong will be made right and justice will be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and thank you, Lord, that we can entrust your word and we can ask that you will help us to receive your word and live and walk in the light of it. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.